Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Now, my fashion friend, mm-hmm. guess what I am not wearing today? Oh, it's not knickers again, is it? No, I do wear knickers. Not <laughs> Joey from Friends. Today, I am not wearing a bra. I right. am wearing a bralette. Now, right. this is bralette, which is what we talked about in summer recipes mm. last week. The bralette, it's a modern thing young women wear. Mine, Trish, is mm. from Kim Kardashian's range. And you know why I'm not wearing a bra? Because right. Gillian Anderson told me I didn't have to wear one on Instagram last week because she's not going to wear one ever no. again. She said they're too uncomfortable. Yes, I saw that. She's sort of letting it all hang loose. But I don't think she'd approve of your bralette. I think that's cheating. I think it's all or nothing. I'm going to go around and show her later on because she lives yeah. near me. <laughs> I'm just going to knock on the door and I'm going to say, Gillian, is my bralette okay? What do you think about that, Trish? And can you come on the show? That as well, yes. While I'm there, yeah. Welcome to Postcards from Midlife. I'm Lorraine Candy. I'm Trish Halpin, and we're on a mission to help you make the most of your magnificent midlife. We'll be tackling everything from mind and body wellness to HRT and your sex drive. Lorraine and I are here to help you have a stylish second act and answer all your midlife questions on fashion, beauty, careers, relationships, family, and as always, the challenges and joys of parenting teens. Welcome everyone to your quiet, happy corner of midlife. Now this episode should feel like a relaxing cup of coffee with your friends, a relief from everything else that's happening around you right now. Isn't that right, Trish? Well, indeed it is. Listeners often say they feel like they're on the sofa with us chatting when they listen. And just this week, one of our wonderful Facebook group members, Nidia, left a very cheering message for us. She said, I listened to the episode with Josie Lloyd and passed it on to all my friends and family. It's brilliant and relatable. I love all of the podcasts the jibber jabber the real topics the speakers and the abundance of vulnerability is heartfelt well that's what we are trish isn't it an abundance of vulnerability <laughs> love that i think when you get to midlife though sharing problems and chatting them through is very important because mm. midlife women are especially wise and this week we are going to be chatting and sharing in abundance with our newly acquired agony aunt superhero capes on aren't yes we? <laughs> We'll be answering some agony art dilemmas in Jibber Jabber before moving on to interview one of the country's leading campaigners for gender and racial equality, the magnificent Pragya Agarwal. We like to give advice on the more serious side of life and Pragya's advice is here to guide us through some cultural dilemmas many of us face as mums and women in society right now. After our interview, we'll be handing out yet more advice. Which sunscreen should you go for on your holidays? And which of the fitness accounts on social media could you squeeze into your day to strengthen and tone your midlife body? I'm just going to tell the listeners, Trish is really struggling to get it together here this morning. She's very hot. (laughs) Her earphones are all twisted up. Oh, God. Yes, my glasses are sliding down my nose. (laughs) 
it's all a bit uh hot down here take a moment mm. trish take a moment before we go on with the show though can i do a tiny bit of showing off well of course why not i'm showing off on our behalf so mm. so we have only been going just over a year and i think we're probably around 60 episodes now and it looks like this week thanks to you lovely listeners <gasps> we will reach mm. 1.5 million downloads mm. Amazing. Yes. The numbers are going up, which is exciting for our little podcast, because the more women we reach, the more women we can help feel happier and healthier as they go through perimenopause and menopause. Yes. So thank you all for listening and hurrah and well done for us, I would say. This week's Jibber Jabber is another Agony Aunt special. Now, we've been enjoying our little stint, Trish, haven't we, solving Mm. your midlife dilemmas because we both grew up wanting to be as smart and knowledgeable as Cathy and Claire from Jackie Magazine. Do you remember Jackie Magazine, Cathy and Claire? Yes, absolutely. We certainly did. But Lorraine, I have to tell you something that might upset you. It might ruin everything you thought was true about the world growing up. Oh, no, this is not about small hedgehogs or furry things, is it? It's going to upset me, no? <laughs> no, it's not what to do it? with small mammals, no. They weren't real. There was no Cathy and Claire. It was actually just what? one woman. Yes, exactly. It was one woman answering those post bags full of teenage girls' traumas. And she's called Gail Anderson. And um, How did you I mean, find this out? Well, I just took you know, a little bit of Googling, as you do. It's my mm. uh, my extensive mm. research, put it into a Google search engine. But why they made it up, I have no idea, because we well, we never resorted no. to that sort of thing, did we, in our day as magazine editors? That's all no. I can say. Wow. We can assure everyone whose problems we answer today that we're, there are two of us here. We do exist. We're called Lorraine and Trish. Dear Lorraine and Trish, for this segment, I feel. And today we've pulled out the postbag questions about relationships. Do you want to kick us off, Trish? Yeah. Okay, surely I will. So here we go. My husband goes running most mornings and he often comes home saying that various women try to flirt with him en route. He says the same thing happens when he goes to the pub. But I think that's because he always brings our very lovely black Labrador with him and it's her that all these so-called attractive women are interested in. Do you think he's just looking for attention or should I be worried that he's on the lookout to have an affair what say you dear Lorraine says the key there is do you think he's just looking for attention Mm. so he's telling you this because you've answered your question reader he is just looking for attention (laughs) I mean I'm not one for faffing around the men and making them happy all the time, but it might be mm. <laughs> he is just looking for attention. So we had we talked to Dr. Kalanitz about this earlier on um, mm-hmm. in the series, and she said those little things like saying, I love you in the morning, making cups of tea, just showing love constantly, especially in long-term mm. relationships, makes people feel loved and respected and wanted, and then they maybe aren't going to be so needy around, or not is the word, needy I don't know I'm not a Mm -hmm. trained therapist but maybe there is a way of just fulfilling that so um your lovely husband with a black labrador doesn't have to keep telling you about all the women he encounters who are (laughs) mad for him on his walk (laughs) I think as well you'll know because is is he generally flirtatious has he been flirtatious up up to this point obviously if he's not then I think Lorraine your advice absolutely true just a bit of attention seeking but if he is a kind of flirtatious character I think there's something that you're not getting you're probably not both not getting in this relationship um, and it might be time to do one of those check-ins with each other again we talked about this on another episode about you know where you maybe take some time to go out for a day together and just 
just talk about your hopes and expectations for life, for your family, for your relationship. And it's that kind of reconnecting, isn't it? As you say, the little romantic gestures. Should I tell you a little romantic gesture that Neil did for me the other day? He put a new head on my electric toothbrush and I just found it there in the cupboard. I thought well, that was quite sweet. I mean, Dallas studied one. Dallas studied. Yeah, it's not up there with, you know, a trip to a luxury hotel, but it made me feel quite happy in my day knowing that my husband oh, had, oh. is looking yeah. after my teeth. Mine so came to see Nomadland with me on my birthday, oh. which is a film he is least likely to yes. ever see in the whole of his life. And actually, he loved it. Oh, that's good. He sacrificed right. himself. We've got another one here. It's a bit mm-hmm. delicate. My partner of 20 years has put on a lot of weight in lockdown. Oh, did I write this about Trish? No. <laughs> my partner's put a lot of weight in lockdown and doesn't seem bothered at all about shifting it. But I am. It's not attractive and I'm worried about his health. However, I'm fed up of nagging him to do exercise, drink less beer and eat more healthily. Should I give up or are there other strategies I can try? Well, mm-hmm. what can well, you say about that? I would say it's him and most of the country, probably in this situation, because let's face it, as we know, lockdown was very hard. Sitting it's around not caring that's the problem. Well, isn't I it? think that's it the is. But food here. was the comfort for all of us. Um, but it's it, when you get into a rut like that, it's quite hard to get out. And I think that, as you say, it makes you feel that he's not bothered about you because he's not bothered about himself. He's not bothered about your relationship. But it's a very, very personal thing. And that what you absolutely must not say is, I'll be more attracted to you if you lose weight. Because even if that is true, raising the possibility that you've lost romantic interest in your partner just creates extra stress. Uh, no, just man, that question. Never say that out loud. <laughs> never say that. So, uh, yeah, so it could even trigger even worse kind of behaviour. So I think you, ha- you do have to put it in the, I'm concerned about your health light and talk about doing it together, maybe getting healthy together, looking at recipes together, maybe doing a workout yes. together, that sort of thing. So sort of easing into it. Would you add yeah. anything to that? Any other? Well, I don't think you can change people and demand they behave in a certain way mm. like that. I mean, there could be all sorts of things going on underneath it. And it might just be, you know, time for a reset all round on the healthy lifestyle, which we mm-hmm. often do, which Julia Samuel, the therapist mentioned as well, you can sort of reset everything, um, especially in long term relationships, but also looking at what you're buying and what you're cooking together, all of that mm-hmm. kind of thing, I think, but definitely not talk about the muffin top the midlife muffin top no because you could put yourself in that situation reverse it and see how you would react i think the confrontation is not going to work right finally we have had one about family disharmony it says my husband and 15 year old son are getting on really badly and i can't stand the atmosphere in the house they used to adore each other but now can't seem to utter two words to each other without setting off an argument or storming off i've followed a lot of advice on this podcast and on the facebook group about parenting teens which has been really helpful for me in understanding what is going on with my kids and how best to interact with them but my husband doesn't seem to want to or or need this help he says what can i do Oh, I got that is it's um, a hard one. That's a very hard one. I read a book very early on in my uh, research for my book called Kickflip Boys, a memoir of freedom, rebellion and the chaos of fatherhood by a dad called Neil Thompson. It's a really great book about parenting teenage boys. And really, the overwhelming conclusion is, particularly dads, you've just got to step back 
and let them define their own identity. It's a similar thing to mums and girls, isn't it? They Mm. are so intrinsically tied to dads because they've been watching everything dads have been doing. They're their main male role model all the way through their childhood. And when they get to teenage, they have to separate. Mm -hmm. Um, I think some men, particularly this generation, take that really personally as a sign of failure in some way. And I think that's what sets up the confrontational aspect of the relationship. I think you have to work out as a dad when you walk in the room with your own fathering and how you've been fathered. Are you repeating patterns? Are you mm. dropping into ruts of where you've been with your own dad? I think that's, but that's really kind of for the dad. Well. How does she get the dad to realise this? Well, she this needs to talk the to the dad about that mm. and buy the books and, and say, yeah, you yeah, know, shove them at him. Work yeah. out the pain points, you know, where mm. um, we kept a little diary once when we were having an issue with one of our teenagers as parents. And throughout the week, we realized certain situations seem to kick off the mum daughter confrontation mm. or the dad son confrontation. And I think it's worth her maybe keeping a diary and working out if there are pain points and then saying to her partner, what can we do about this? How do you feel about it? How do you think you can change mm. the outcome um, of what is happening? I think it's really hard for her to witness it. And yeah. she needs to think about how she then reacts with her teenage son yeah. um, because she can't take sides really. No. In that. That's for them. Time, yeah, because it? if you it, you what could probably you try and sort of end up being the buffer, can't you, and stepping in and trying to kind of, you know, and, and that can be quite exhausting, I think, if you're kind of constantly breaking up the round. Then the worst thing you can do, though, is pull your husband up in front of your son because you don't want to be arguing in front of him. You want everything to simmer down, both take a time out, and then you reassure your son that his dad does love him. Then you, I suppose once your husband has calmed down, you do need to kind of talk about it. And, you know, I would be saying you are the adult. It depends how bad it gets, but I think there has to be a sort of light bulb moment for him as a father. There's a discipline element, isn't Mm. there? Some some dads are very uh, aware of respect and discipline, and Mm. they take they they may feel that they need to set very firm lines in the sand that they haven't agreed with you as mum beforehand Mm -hmm. so everyone's a bit confused about what what the line in the sand is and also you know teenage boys as you know Trish are enormous they are really big people in the house so it can sometimes feel confrontational just because it's two very big people it's it's a tricky time isn't it um it's redefining your relationship with your son as a dad and you watching that from the outside as mum and in the context of the family yeah I wish her luck with that patience calmness not having to deal with it in the moment are the key bits aren't they Mm -hmm. well we hope that was helpful do let us know if you have a dilemma you'd like us to give you some advice on by emailing us hello at postcardsfrommidlife.com and you can dm us on the facebook group or on instagram too when you're ready to pop the question the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring at BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Today's guest on Postcards from Midlife has written three of the most important and critically acclaimed books of our time. Thought-provoking, passionate and urgent, Pragya Agarwal's books are must-reads for modern women and parents today. Pragya is a behavioural and data scientist, an entrepreneur, an educational speaker and an activist campaigning for gender and racial equality. She published Sway, Unravelling Unconscious Bias last year and followed it with We Wish We Knew What to Say, Talking to Children About Race. Now she has delivered motherhood on the choices of being a woman. Pragya, 45, is the mum of a 24-year-old daughter and four-year-old twins born via surrogacy. She has written emotively about her abortion, miscarriage, infertility and premature menopause. Her books have helped thousands of mums and dads navigate today's urgent debates on race, identity, feminism, motherhood and belonging. Pragya is one of the smartest, kindest and funniest midlife women we know. Welcome to Postcards from Midlife, Pragya. Thank you so much for having me here. Now, firstly, I want to thank you for writing Wish We Knew What to Say, Talking to Children About Race, because it's so digestible. It's such a readable book. And I personally found it super helpful during the Black Lives Matter debates last year with my children. I've recommended it to all the parents that I know. So I thought we could start by finding out who you are, because a lot of your work is about identity and where we're from and where we stand in society. So tell us a little bit about your identity. So I'm a brown woman. I was born in India and I am a mother. So I have three daughters. I now live in the UK. I came to the UK more than 20 years ago to do my master's and PhD and stayed here. I'm married to a man who would probably describe him as Scottish, English. (laughs) Yeah, so I was one of three sisters, born in India, did my first degree in architecture, became a parent really young, came here to do my master's and then did a PhD. I was a senior academic. I'm now a visiting professor at Loughborough University in inequities and social inclusion. That is about it. I have a dog and a cat. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's worth also mentioning you had your first daughter when you were 19. It was a very traumatic birth, wasn't it? And you left her with your parents. And they were quite progressive, your parents, weren't they? They would let you go off and study. Were you married? Because you came to England after you'd had her. Mm. Yeah, so I write about this in my latest book, Motherhood, on the choices Mm. of being a woman, about the birth, which was, yes, I had a really young. It was unexpected but not undesired. I kind of realized my aspirations for her in a society where she would grow up in and what I wanted for her and for myself. And as things came around, I got a scholarship from the British Council to come here and do a master's at the University of York. Um, My parents have been hugely supportive. They had three daughters and I was the oldest and they were always very supportive of her careers, very encouraged us to follow our dreams. And obviously it wasn't an ideal situation, but that was the best situation in that current circumstances. And I knew that she would be loved and and cherished there. So I left her there. I went back very regularly. I spoke to her every night on the phone, but it wasn't like being in person. Um, It was a very, very difficult time for me. How old was she when you were reunited? 
I brought her here full time with me when she was eight years old and left her there when she was around three. So for five years, we went back and forth every couple of months. Your new book uh, on motherhood, it's really fascinating. It's full of historical research data and and kind of context on the way we define ourselves through and around mothering and what society expects of us as mothers. You know, that is quite complex, isn't it? What do you hope to achieve by writing it? And for those reading it, what do you hope will change? for them? I suppose I wanted to show that mothering is not a homogeneous experience, even though we put this label on people and we expect so much from women in particular about becoming a mother. First of all, there are these questions from society. When are you going to have a child that constantly haunt people? It's almost like if you don't have children, you've not fulfilled your kind of status or expectations in society. And these questions are asked more from women than men. And I wanted to show through history, historical research, that how these ideas of womanhood have been constructed, how women's status and position has been so closely linked to their fertility and to their Mm -hmm. reproductive abilities. But also through this book, I wanted to talk about the intersectional aspects of motherhood, because often we don't hear stories from people who are on the fringes, who are marginalized, who don't fit into the norm of what a woman and a mother looks like. And I wanted to raise these these questions and, and show that there is a breadth to this topic. There are different ideas of womanhood and motherhood that we have to consider if we really want want to form a notion around it. But also it's about how much society expects from mothers as much as well, and how women's bodies are monitored, how they are are, um, evaluated, judged all the time. And and we internalize some of these beliefs and we crack carry these pressures and guilt with us all the time. And I suppose in raising girls and daughters, I wanted to also show, have an understanding of how we can achieve that, that idealized state, state of our bodies, our choice. How do we do that? And that, that has to be the norm, not mm-hmm. that our bodies are open for discussion and judged. And how women still don't have choices about their fertility, about their reproduction, about their bodies. But that motherhood is idealized, but mothering is not. And we need to question what society is going to do for mothers as well. You know, we don't Mm -hmm. have child care, affordable child care. Women have to give up their careers. Women have to carry more of the emotional and mental load. So what is society doing for mothers as well? It's fascinating. So the way the title is written, I should explain for listeners, is it's mother and the word other is in brackets because it's about all of it. But you've had such an extraordinary experience because you tell your personal story throughout. It's a memoir as well. Extraordinary experience of being a mother. You've almost everything, haven't you? Because you write about your abortion, you write about your infertility. You had your twins who were nearly five via surrogacy, didn't you? Um, Surrogate in India. You had your first daughter at 19. It's been such a journey, hasn't it? I guess what in that time, so you've been mothering from 19 right the way through to 45. In that time, what have you learned and what have you changed that maybe our listeners could benefit from knowing. Now that I look at it and when I wrote about it, I realized actually it's been a very interesting journey. And often we don't look at our stories and think that they've been interesting. We just live those lives and think, okay, that happened to me and let's just move on. But I suppose 
now being a mother again. And through this period, I've become more aware of how my own beliefs about myself and even like implicitly my words and actions about myself affect my children as well. So I need to actually believe in those things that I tell them, all the empowering message that I give them. I need to live that life as well. And through those years, I actually became more aware of that. And also the importance of having more honest conversations with my children about everything, about their bodies, about race, racism, about sex, sexism, misogyny, everything. And, and how, unless we have these honest conversations, we I cannot just start at the age of 10 or 12 or 15. I mean, I could, but it has to start from as soon as they're born, that this, this becomes a part of the values of the family. I've also become better at asking for help and saying mm-hmm. that I can't do everything, which I was, and I was a young and, and then single parent for a while. And I didn't, I thought that I had to prove somehow that I was a really capable person by not ever asking for help. And I think I've become better at it. And obviously I have my husband now, so we share the parenting. So it's become easier in some ways for me. I'm actually prioritizing myself. I think I don't want to be consumed in motherhood this time around. I want to say that I stand alone as a person as well. And my needs, my desires, my ambitions, my aspirations matter as well as much. Most of our listeners, those who have children will have teenagers. How do we make sure we use the right language around, you know, subjects such as race, identity, feminism, and make sure that we're really listening to our teens and understanding their understanding of those topics? This is something I've learned. But with my older daughter, there were topics that I didn't talk to her about when she was very young. It was only when she was growing up and she was a teenager that it became more important to me. I realized more that I need to talk about it. But I think I see the teenagers now and young people, and I'm just so impressed by how much they they are socially conscious. They're so aware. They're so flexible about some of the norms that we hold very rigid with us, you know, like gender norms as well. They just naturally understand it rather than questioning that people don't have to fit into a particular binary gender mm-hmm. or, or that the notion of identity is so strong with them sometimes. So I think we can learn so much from them, from listening to them as well, understanding and talking more with them. But if we haven't had these conversations before, I think there's never, it's never too late to start. You know, Mm -hmm. we can Mm -hmm. always start. Let's have a conversation around the dinner table. We've seen this bit of news. What did you think about it? What's happening in school? I think we sometimes assume that if they haven't mentioned anything, that everything is okay. Like they understand Mm -hmm. things. And I know I speak to so many parents, but also young people that they think so much they they think more than we we ever understand or we are aware of especially as teenagers there's a lot going on in their mind and I think just just striking these conversations I used to find really useful talking to my daughter when I was driving because then Mm -hmm. it was never like yeah, yeah it was never like this pressure let's talk because she would be so resistant to the idea of talking to me (laughs) when she was a teenager. Just trying what's happening. Uh, Did you read this news? Um, Of course, they hear the news. They're on social media so much. They hear all this news. So I I suppose asking about what they think, sharing your experiences about how you felt. I thought that sharing my mistakes is also very useful because Mm -hmm. it shows them that it's okay to think wrong and then correct yourself. Nobody's ever 
ideal and that we all make mistakes. One of the things we talked about when you you helped me with part of my book is that you've been very vocal with your daughter about feminism all her life, but you hadn't been vocal about racism and that actually black and brown women have a much bigger job to do with teenage girls mm. sometimes because they have the heritage and the information that no one else has because the girls are growing up in a predominantly white society. We talked about UK uh, mainly. It's a different experience for black and brown mums the teenage years. Yes, it is. And just speaking about my own experience, I think because I came from India, Feminism is for such an important thing for me from a patriarchal society, how my position as a woman, and I wanted to empower her as a woman, as a girl. But I hadn't really faced racism firsthand. Uh, Obviously, colorism exists in South Asian communities, but I hadn't been aware of race and racism. And I suppose, as I talk about in my other books, I wanted to just ignore that aspect of my identity in the way that if I don't talk about it, people wouldn't notice, people didn't th- wouldn't think that I've been appointed to an academic position because I'm brown or because of positive discrimination. I wanted to believe in this idea of meritocracy. And so I didn't broach that topic. I didn't talk about it as much. There was a lot of internalized beliefs that I had to unlearn as well in my in my years here of early years of parenting with her but slowly I realized about identity and and how um, I, I mentioned this incident when she was nine or ten years old we were stopped by a policeman and because somebody thought that we were sh- stealing or something in a shop or something mm-hmm. and and that was a really a big moment for me to realize that actually it's so important for her to me to talk to her about her identity because she was navigating predominantly white spaces, which wasn't my experience as a child or a young person. So obviously it was a very different experience. Um, Yes, I think black and brown parents who have grown up here or who have faced racial discrimination themselves are hyper aware of these things, of these issues. So they're more likely to talk to their children about it. Now I know having lived in this country for 20 years and navigated those discussions and writing about it, I am more conscious about how my children, even though they are almost white passing, how they're seen in a society where they are in the minority and how their identity is going to be shaped, how they're going to be take pride about their Indian heritage, how people will respond to them. And I, I suppose in speaking to other brown and black parents, this really comes across that they have to speak to the children about how to navigate public spaces from a very young age, especially black parents, especially parents of black boys, because of the fear and threat associated around identities of black boys, stereotypes associated with it. So there's this sense that we're always talking about race and it's and that it becomes important for us from a young age to talk to our children about it. Well, it's particularly now with what, um, I mean, I feel sometimes that we live in a kind of slightly privileged bubble where we just say how awful, how awful all the time. But what what do we do about that as parents, as white parents? How can we make an activist difference in the debate that's going on right now? There was a lot of social consciousness around this topic around last year when Black Lives Matter happened. Parents were reading a lot of books. They were, I think, schools were doing more, even digitally or remotely. Uh, There were lots of resources being distributed around. Um, So I think that that, that was helpful in a way that parents were, suddenly white parents were aware that actually this is a top discussion we need to have with our children. We can't just ignore it. It's not just the responsibility of black and brown parents to talk to their children about it. But 
yes, sometimes just reading resources or is helpful. It's really good because yeah. we need to talk to our children. Um, but having those lines of communication open all the time. So we talk to them whenever something happens, like this happened with Euro. What are they thinking? What are their perceptions about it? How have the black and brown or black children or black boys in their ear felt about it or thought about it? What is the school doing about it? I think talking to schools and nurseries is really important because sometimes they don't take it up actively. What can we do more actively in terms of being an ally or, or supporting those who don't have a voice or supporting those who, if we see racial bullying or racial discrimination, happening. What do we do? As children grow older, I think this idea of them supporting others, if you have the power and privilege, you should be able to support others and give them a platform. Talking to children about a privilege, I think all of us is really, really important constantly. I, of course, as as a brown person, we have that identity, but We also have a lot of privilege. Everybody does. So we need to Mm -hmm. think about the intersectionality of privileges as well, you know. Um, So for my daughter, I spoke to her a lot about it. And we went and uh, volunteer. I took her with me to volunteer at homeless shelters from a young age when she was allowed to. We cooked together on Christmas and Boxing Day at homeless shelters. And she served food and listened to their stories since she was an early teenager. And that really made her think about what she has and what others don't have and where that line is and how can she do more um, to help those. And I think active acts like that, petitions, going to protest where possible, signing things, raising petitions. And, and, and I think writing can be really helpful for children as well. Encouraging them to write about how they're feeling about certain things can really help them verbalize and vocalize these things. So moving on to talk about midlife, we're all midlife women here. (laughs) You refer in the book, Motherhood, you say our hormones are telling us things and never is that more true probably than Mm -hmm. in menopause when it can feel for some that we are no longer of use because we cannot reproduce. So this narrative, you know, that you're kind of your worth has gone. It's really quite overwhelming, isn't it? How do we reframe that internally and externally, especially in the media? Because the narrative is is not positive, is it, around menopausal women? No, I mean, ageism is so deeply entrenched in our society. And especially when age and gender intersects, women, older women, yeah, are are really the way they're shown in movies, the way they're shown in it on TV is really harmful, really. And if we start thinking about it, it, it makes me more and more angry the more mm-hmm. I think about it. I think we need to really constantly question this because it is ultimately linked to that aspect that a woman's worth is only with reproduction and with mm-hmm. her reproductive yeah. abilities. And we fetishize young youth so much at times, but also demonize them. So young people can't make their own decisions or don't know their mind. And then we suddenly say women over the age of 35 are geriatric. And they, and so this Can't language wait. is really important. Mm-hmm. I think language is a lens on society, the way we see society and the way we frame society. A language around talking about people, women especially, has to change. And so we need to question the words that are being used in media around women and, and the images that are being used. Uh, homogenizing people as older women can be quite harmful as well, because not everybody is the, at the same stage in their lives. Recently, I did a poll, an informal poll on Twitter about what does middle age mean to you? When does it start? And it was really interesting to see the results because 
a lot of people thought that it didn't start till 55. Mm. And they were mostly women because they didn't think that. And still, we think that, and and a lot of people said that actually it starts at 40. And Mm. I was, so we can see that there's a huge discrepancy between these terms that we use as well. There's no scientific basis to what middle age is. Language is really important. We need to really question the words that are being used, the images that are being used. You went through... A premature menopause, didn't you? So did you know any of the medical terms for that? And did you know about perimenopause? Did you, I mean, you're a scientist as well. I mean, Trish and I didn't know. We edited glossy magazines, for God's sake. What did you know at the time about it? I didn't know anything. <laughs> that is, comes as a huge surprise. And not as a surprise even because I think we don't know about our bodies. We're not told mm-hmm. much about our bodies. By writing the book, that's something that I wanted to talk about is that we are not given the information about our bodies. When I recently spoke with my mom and told her that this happened, she said, actually, she had gone through early menopause. And I didn't know that because I've never talked about it with her. So we don't talk about these things sometimes, even in families. She never told me because she didn't think it was important. Even as a scientist, even as somebody who had studied biology, even I didn't know much about perimenopause. I'm now finding out so much more about what could I, I could have done better during that time to manage um, in the last few years or what I could have done more or not. And ultimately, all those kind of things is a vicious cycle because it creates guilt as well, isn't it? Why didn't I find out more? Why didn't I do more? It becomes my responsibility. So one of the other things that really fascinated me in the book, Motherhood, is when you talk about the trauma that lives in ourselves from the from actually from birth onwards, you say there's a theory that we experience then stays with us all the way through and may manifest physically or emotionally when we hit midlife. How do you think that sort of early trauma does manifest in midlife? Because we're dealing with so much perimenopause, menopause. How does that trauma live with us and how can we make it better or deal with it better so it doesn't affect us. Yes, this idea of trauma living in our cells and bodies is something I think scientifically it's been shown to a certain extent as well, because it alters our bodies, it alters the cells, it alters the way that our physiology as well. And I think during this period when we are kind of the sandwich generation, we are caring sometimes for our parents and we're caring for our children as well. As you say, there's a huge amount of responsibility to to take care of and and to deal with a lot that's changing with our bodies as well. Sometimes a trauma can become more visible to us. And maybe it is the time when women feel more less confident. It's it's a paradoxical situation because you feel less confident, but you feel more empowered about your bodies in a sense. Because I know now I don't really care that much about Mm -hmm. what people think of me. Uh, much less than what I used to when I was younger. So in a way, you're you're becoming more aware of your body, but you're caring less about what people think. But as you become more aware of your body, these past traumas that you might have buried as well can become quite um, open wounds and that you have to deal with. Things that you might have put away, buried, not talked about can become quite explicit. And I suppose we need to be more aware of how it changes our body's physiology in the way that trauma affects us. And talking more openly and honestly about it, even from a young age, if we didn't bury those traumas, maybe we don't have to deal with it now, but would have dealt with them in the Mm -hmm. past. 
So, I mean, you, you're a behavioural scientist. <clears throat> In the book, you talk about men being the norm and women are other. You know, let's talk about men for a bit. Midlife men. Midlife men. How do we get them to understand? How do we get them to get on board with it? Because quite often, I mean, you know, we've got you know, husbands in their 50s, quite often their language, their vocabulary isn't necessarily, they don't have the words, the tools to, to kind of talk about a, a lot of these things. And, you know, particularly, I think uh, we both probably find it with our daughters that, you know, they, they're quite, their fathers are quite sort of, oh, you know, because they're quite strident, they have amazing vocabulary, they're knowledgeable, or, you know, they're passionate about things. How do we get men along on this journey with us? Yeah, I was laughing because... Thank you for laughing, look. (laughs) (laughs) That's the biggest question. Is it ringing a bell? Yeah, Yeah, lots of it. So yes, my older daughter was very strident, very Mm -hmm. in the same way. And I think my husband took it personally at times Mm -hmm. as well. It's Mm -hmm. like he didn't know what to do or how to talk about it. I think men also have a lot of internalized beliefs and sometimes... And, and the men at this stage might not have been raised in a very feminist manner, might not even have talked about these things. They've grown up in a sort of men have to be like this and women have yeah. to be like this and men don't show emotions or men don't do this. And it depends on the family context, of course, but but they don't they don't know much about women's bodies because as we know, we know we see the data, they don't read books written by women or, mm. big, or books about women sometimes, often right. because, and so they never know. And, and I and now with my husband while raising these children, I had to be very explicit from the moment they were born that this is how we are supposed to raise them. This is the language we are going to use. We're going to use the right word or vocabulary for their private parts, even if it makes you uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think he was quite awkward, but he's become much more comfortable with it. And he's read, he's done a lot of unlearning and he's done a lot of learning. He's read a lot around it. He's read a lot about gender and feminism. And also, I talked very openly to him about perimenopause, that I'm the anger that I'm feeling is not personal. Actually, yeah, the rage, because he's like, I'm really scared of you when you get so angry. (laughs) Yes, you should be, but it's not personal. Um, So yes, I think... It's hard, isn't it, to make for men not to feel defensive about this? You know, they can feel it's their fault and all we're doing all the time is shouting patriarchy really loudly in the kitchen. (laughs) It's, it's, I don't know how to tread that line in a comfortable comfortable way without saying right okay do you know what you just have to do this because like that's often not the best way to deal with gen x men we work i know we shouldn't but we work around them (laughs) um i with my husband i just say this is how it is and you should read more about it if you're uncomfortable and you should be aware that this the systemic inequalities exist in our society i'm also dealing with race as well as gender while bringing up my children so we need Mm -hmm. to be aware of that um, and I, I think, yes, they have to be responsible and accountable in, mm. in, of, of their own learning and unlearning as yeah. well. It's not just our responsibility to educate them, even if they're not bringing up daughters, if they are bringing up sons, then, mm-hmm. then also, I think, for their yeah. own sake. Yes, it, they have to understand it's not about all men. <laughs> That's yeah. hashtag not all men. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> but, but I think that, that you, you're right, because I think, you know, looking just looking at my husband, he's always reading about the past. He's just, you know, all the books on his bedside stand are about World War II, 
bombing oh, raids yeah. and bomber that command and you know all of, and it's all the kind of men of the past and those oh. things and he would never you know so I think I'm gonna to have to pop your book on his bedstand <laughs> and get rid of the you know en- engineering books and the historical <laughs> books it's like we'll take it get up in to terms date? Trish we'll <laughs> yes. read to him yes, sit exactly. either side of him on your special velvet sofa and we'll read to <laughs> yes I'll read words book. from your book yes that's what I think I'm gonna to need to do yeah yeah what is it with world war ii and listen you you've achieved so much and you've left us so much to think about which is amazing but before we finish we'd just love to know how do you fit it all in how do you make everything work give us some advice Pragya, <laughs> will you about how we can feel less overwhelmed and more organized in life i don't think we anybody can do it all or fit mm. it all in I just think day to day, I have to be more flexible, especially now that I have small children, things, plans just go haywire, going out to, to go somewhere can take us an hour because mm-hmm. some one of them has a meltdown. But I prioritize, I prioritize things that are important. And I sometimes don't prioritize cleaning the house or doing the laundry and my husband does most of it. So that's very Ooh, good nice as well. We just have to think about our priorities and think about even if it's not perfect it doesn't really matter you know if my house is not perfect my children might not might be watching more tv than i would hope them or want them to um, i might not be reading with them every day um, but it's just how we manage everything to a certain extent to a certain level and i used to make lists and I still make lists, but I also on Fridays sometimes think about what I've achieved during the week because mm-hmm. we sometimes don't look at our achievements, That's all nice of us. Idea. And especially I think yeah. women are so targeted and focused on achieving the next thing, doing the next thing, getting the next, whatever. Um, and so much on our lists all the time. And so I think that can reduce the feeling of overwhelm a little because mm-hmm. we then think, okay, I've actually achieved so much even little things like I managed to get my child to swimming when they didn't want to go that can be a huge achievement Mm -hmm. and we sometimes ignore those little achievements like make a nice meal or that we sat around the table and talked which is a nice achievement Mm -hmm. sometimes so I think focusing on little things and little achievements can be so looking back as well not just constantly facing forwards yes that's nice excellent well thank you so much for joining us that was so nice having you here you've been absolutely lovely you bring a really lovely warm kind it's gonna happen we can do it energy which i like (laughs) thank you so much for having me it's so lovely to speak with you It's How to Win at Midlife, and this week we're doing a bit of a summer mashup, as the youngsters might say, aren't we, Lorraine? Yes, Trish. I don't (laughs) like it when you use those words. You don't, do you? (laughs) Well, you wanted to talk about um, the fitness videos you've been discovering on social media, and I wanted to talk about sun creams. So we thought, what the hell? Let's do both. I mean, crazy, right? Yes, steady on. I'll be on that old chili martini. You going crazy all the time. Now, listen, I just wanted to do this because I was thinking I need to get a little bit fit every day without putting in much effort. And I was Mm -hmm. just facing a wall of hit 
type activity um, on social media. And then I found these three little accounts, which I thought, this is really good, really easy. I can feel it. I can um, follow it. It's just about strengthening, you know, and keeping my fitness generally up without, you know, winning any Olympic medals, which obviously Mm -hmm. I will do at some point, but not at the moment. I'm going to do canoeing for my Olympic career. Right. So these are people to follow who do very quick Instagram story IGTV or what they call reels workouts they're timed and you can do them every day so there's a wonderful woman called Shona Vertu V-E-R-T-U-E she's an Australian she used to train David Beckham it's all very sunny and lovely but she's very science-based but she does these really quick I mean you can literally watch them on Instagram do them in between your shower and um, going downstairs to do your breakfast. Love her. And then there's something else called Nix Fit, N-I-I-X Fit. It's on YouTube and Instagram. And they have a great website. You can subscribe or you can do for free Pilates-based really easy you're not going to get covered in sweat and you can do them at a level that could be harder if you wanted so this is for all all rounders but they do these really simple things you can follow every day and then the other one i love um she's more running based but do you remember nell mccandrew trish the lovely model amazing yeah yeah she's amazing she's written lots of books about running and staying fit she is nelly mcfitness n-e-l-l-i-e-m-c fitness on instagram and she does these little workouts she does a bit of skipping just things that you can try so if you wanted to do the others and then mix it up a bit with a bit of Mm -hmm. her there's kate roham as well who is a little bit more hip but she specializes in menopause find your form pilates australian Mm -hmm. check that out like it and then finally obviously davina does own your goals Mm. um, which is a fitness channel you can subscribe to but my three are nick's fit now mcandrew and shona vertu excellent that's really helpful i wouldn't have thought to kind of just do a little quick insta video yeah. but you know get that you, little you butt of yours in shape <laughs> 10 or 20 minutes later. well i need to get my butt in shape because i'm going on holiday i'm going sailing yeah. in greece you can tell i'm excited i've not been very excited about all the covid tests and things we've had to sort out like howard's way stressful <laughs> it's me on a boat Canadian line yes sailing it's not quite the Canadian line i think that was the 18th century it's not that bad. <laughs> I do wear shorts and a t-shirt, not a sort of. Okay. Do you wear a jaunty hat? Yes, well, a baseball cap, obviously. Cap to keep help. the sun off my face. Anyway, so how I'm are you going to stay peachy, well, perfectly tanned? Thing, because, well, I don't want to be tanned. <laughs> well, I do want to be tanned, but I don't want to burn my skin because I'm the only one in the family who ever thinks about buying and packing sun cream, right? And I'm usually the one who has to actually go around slathering it on people. And last year I decided I wasn't going to. And of course, my son got horribly burnt, 16, oh, yeah, really horribly burnt and unwell. And then Neil has actually had a basal cell carcinoma removed recently. Ooh, so I've decided you? actually... Do you know what? It's the one annoying mum job that I'm just prepared to keep on doing because, on, you know, I thought I'd it. give up. But it's not safe is the point. So um, very quick whiz through some sunscreens and things to consider because obviously sunlight has got lots of health benefits like vitamin D, but letting your skin get burnt, tan away, fine, using your factor, but don't get burnt. It's the worst thing you can do because it just causes havoc in the skin, causes inflammation damages the stem cells, leads to cancer. So when you're choosing sunscreen, you need to think about, do you know the difference between UVA and UVB? Probably. Shall I tell you very quickly? So Go UVA, ultraviolet A, is 
the rays that are associated with skin aging. So the breakdown of collagen, pigmentation, all of that. And then the UVB is the skin burning. So we always need to buy a product that's got high UVA and high UVB. Um, You need a concentration of both. So the SPF figure is what tells you the UVB, how much time you can spend in the sun. And you really should never go below a a 30, no matter your 50, I do. I'm a 50. We're both a 50. That means essentially you could spend 10 times, 10 minutes in the sun without burning. So 30 SPF would increase that to 300 minutes. But obviously you really should be applying it every two hours. And if you jump in the water, you should definitely apply it. And uh, right. So you also need to think about mineral versus chemical sunscreens, Uh, but they're both good. But there is a bit of debate about all mineral healthier because they don't soak into your skin. But chemical are absolutely I worry about the sea what all soaks into well the exactly the so world. you will yeah. probably like one of the ones i'm going to recommend i've got three a budget buy uh, is bondi sands which is australia's number one sun creams and tanning brand and australia have the most stringent lab testing of sunscreens in of the world do, yeah. so obviously this is a really nice product fragrance free lovely lotion that glides on right. face body all of it cruelty free doesn't damage the reefs and starting about £7.99 from Boots Superdrug. So that's oh, okay. very affordable. The only thing about it is it, it's I use an SPF 50, but the UVA is three stars. So it's still high, but it's a little bit lower than the absolute right. top it can be. Okay, Mid-range, so I'm going to fork out some more. What am I going to spend? La Roche-Posay and Thelios range. Oh, I love a French accent. And Thelios. Well, that is super nice. It's one of those French pharmacy brands, but everybody will have seen it available in Boots and places like John Lewis. Prices from £10 for the face cream, at which everybody, Kate Moss, everybody, they all buy this product. My favourite, and I'm calling it pricey but worth it, is Ultrasun, which is a Swiss brand developed 30 years ago by a Swiss chemist. And the products are hypoallergenic, emulsifiers, no perfume, because sometimes it can give you like prickly heat and block pores and things, which isn't very Mm. nice. So Ultrasun, I would say amazing. And I've got SPF 50 face with anti-pigmentation. And you know, that's my bugbear. So I'm very pleased about that. So you can get some skincare benefits. And that costs £32. And then the body lotions, they go anywhere from 22 to 28. So it is a bit of an investment sands on neil ultrasound on trish (laughs) exactly that's how it works why not treat myself (laughs) like a little tooty toot intro special announcement favorite bits of the show Mm. trish what kind of nostalgia noodling have you been doing this week well, I've been back to the 70s again and back to Wembley High Road, which you'll have heard me talk about before. <laughs> the glamorous hut. Ha- uh, where it was at? <laughs> Definitely was. Well, Dad, he took us to Woolworths. Do you remember Woolworths? Yeah, I love a Woolworths. Woolworths, yeah. yes, they don't exist anymore. Not to buy some pick and mix, but to buy a record. And the record, we were allowed to choose any record we wanted. And I chose the Top of the Pops album. Oh. Which, because I just thought I'm going to be really smart here and I'm going to get all those songs. I'm not just going to buy one little single. I'm going to get all of those songs that I like from the charts. That is so Trish. That is so the so difference between Trish. Trish. I'd be in there and I'd be like, what, what, what? Give me a single, quick, quick, instant yeah. hit. And exactly. you're thinking, I was sensibly, planning ahead sensibly. I will get lots more for my but, money here. oh dear, the disappointment. Well, obviously, first of all, there's the, the slight weirdness of giving your dad the album because there's a girl in a bikini on the cover and you're yeah. like, can I 
that, please. And Dad's looking at the girl in the bikini. But it, it wasn't the real artists. It was kind of anonymous oh, cover versions oh. of all these hits what that were in swizz. the hit parade. It was a terrible swizz. I was very upset about it. But it did go from the late 60s to the early 80s. So they were obviously popular. But I think it was cheap because it was like the price of a single, which is why I got an album. And then I knew, and obviously never again, only the real thing for me. As in most, that's why you headed into the world of luxury fashion. Exactly, that, no it? fakes for me. For that Definitely not. What well, about you? I Where have, have you a been? slightly dad nostalgia noodle. Oh, a lot dads. of dads. Because I have recently been into the country to the weekend and my family made me go mountain biking with them. Oh, very good. Well, it's not not good from the look on your face. I'm not good on a machine. The noodle is the phrases your dads used when Mm. they taught you to do things. So Mm -hmm. whenever I was learning to ride a bike, and remember my dad was a policeman, he was a police motorcycle, he was a trained driver. So cars, bikes, they were his thing. Not very understanding of me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Patient or tolerant. And he used to shout at the top of his voice, pedal, pedal, pedal. <laughs> and it, it used to strike such fear into oh. me. He was very uh, a master of the go hard, go big, go oh, first. God, so we'd go to the top of a hill oh, and no, he just like, when I learned to swim, he'd push you down. So uh, we would go down this hill at 100 miles an hour. Oh, well, I would. He'd be running beside me and he would be shouting, pedal, pedal, pedal. Oh. So now, whenever I get on a bike, when I got on that mountain bike and they all just shot off and left oh. me at the top of this forest in Lanhydrock, I was just sat there with these words, oh, pedal, in your, pedal. In your mind. Oh, <laughs> in dad. my mind. Yes. And obviously when you hear that, the last thing you can do, I mean, I couldn't remember where my feet were, let alone <laughs> pedal. It's just so funny how these things flash you back <laughs> oh they do that's what Neil's I mean I managed it Trish because I'm very brave well you, you are know. brave you are brave. brave that's what Neil's going to be saying on the boat in Greece sail 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 and I'll be getting all the <laughs> stressed and upset about it oh dear yes oh well dear. so a lesson learnt about mm. our childhood and, and uh, let's hope we didn't do that to our children Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Postcards from Midlife. Thanks for listening. And if you enjoyed it, please tell your friends and all the midlife women you know. And remember to subscribe on your podcast provider and rate and review us too. And make sure you download your episodes, please, because they will count on our listener numbers and that will be super helpful. Thank you. And don't forget, you can join us on our private Facebook group. All you have to do is answer the three questions to be admitted into the group. You can also follow us on Instagram and you can email us at hello at postcardsfrommidlife.com. And if you haven't seen our brand spanking new website yet, please do go and check that out. It has all of the episodes on there and some general information about a lot of the subjects we discuss. And that is www.postcardsfrommidlife.com. Goodbye. Goodbye. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com.